Hello, fellow dog-powered sports enthusiasts. This is Chelsea Murray, and you are listening to Positively Dog-Powered, a podcast that dives deep into the real world of positive reinforcement training and dog-powered sports. All right, today, everybody, we're back with another episode, and today I'm joined by a special friend and fellow dog trainer, Katie Sipple of Wise Mind Canine. Katie, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you for having me. I'm so excited to chat with you again. Yeah, so today we're going to be talking about something that's really important as we're talking about our up-and-coming dryland mushing teams and sled teams, which is this concept of adding new dogs to the home and really making sure that the dogs are building a positive association with each other. Because in order for our dogs to be able to work together as a team, they need to be able to get along. We need to make sure that they're not getting into fights or guarding resources. We really need to make sure that this relationship is nice and strong. So before we dive into our topic for today, Katie, do you mind giving everybody a brief introduction about who you are and how you are involved in dogs? Yeah, so my name again is Katie Sipple. I live in the western suburbs of Chicago with my significant other and my three lovely dogs. Um, You know, I'm a proud alliance, and I actually have a degree in molecular and cellular biology, which will probably be relevant in a minute. Um, but I kind of made this jump from, you know, I'm going to be a, have a career as a scientist, I'm going to go get a PhD, and then I hopped into dog training. So kind of how I got there was just, you know, I grew up having this absolute love for dogs. And I actually had a Siberian Husky growing up. And seven-year-old me decided that it'd be a great idea to train this dog how to pull a sled. I had no idea what I was doing. I just watched, like, you know, Balto, Iron Will, that sort of thing. So I got this poor Siberian Husky with a harness made out of a jump rope, pulling a sled. You know, the dog was an excellent sport. (laughs) In fact, pulled that sled. Um, but you know, I didn't really live in a family where we trained dogs. That just wasn't how dogs, uh, were treated where I grew up. So later on in my adulthood, I would get to live that dream of learning about training dogs. Yeah. So the second kind of thing that you need to know about how I came into the dog world is just that I have four separate chronic, chronic medical conditions and living with those conditions, uh, the first and foremost was my post-traumatic stress disorder, kind of altered the trajectory of my working career. So instead of taking that fancy degree and going and working as a scientist, you know, I ended up working part-time at PetSmart because that's what I was capable of doing at the time. And I had one of the managers kind of take an interest in me and they sent me to be trained as a dog trainer. So I kind of transitioned into being a dog trainer just kind of by accident. Life brought me there. Um, and when my PTSD made it so I couldn't work anymore, I ended up training my own PTSD service dog. And that's when I really started diving deep into the dog world and behavior and training. And now you have your own business and you're a, an accredited dog trainer, uh, through the animal international association of animal behavior consultants, right? Yes, I have that. I'm also, uh, a graduate of the Aggression and Dogs Master Course. I am working on a family dog mediator uh, certification. I'm also working on my certified dog behavior consultant. So I have a lot of irons in the fire right now as I'm, you know, catching up in the work world. 
Well, I will say that I'm glad that your life took a bit of a professional turn because the dog world needs you and we're very happy to have you. And you do a little bit of dog powered sports, some canny hiking and a little bit of can across with your German Shepherds, right? Yeah. So Fish is my youngest German Shepherd. He's about two and a half years old right now. And we took your course, I think in the spring. Um, my health is kind of a mess. So we have all the pieces, uh, you know, for going can hiking uh, or doing can across. But now it's been a matter of my body catching up. So I've actually been very thankful for your course because now I've spent a bunch of time in physical therapy so that my body can do, you know, dog-powered sports. So I think probably in the next few months here, we'll be doing can hiking and then the goal is spring or summer doing can cross. Well, a couple episodes ago, I had a nice panel of women on who all were dealing with chronic illness and uh, enjoy dog-powered sports in the the capacity that they are able to. And I think that's one of my favorite things about it too, is that there really are a variety of ways you can get out and enjoy time outside with your dogs. And it's so healing. You know, there are some days where I get up and my body is swollen and stiff and just getting out there with my dog is healing, you know, and once my body starts moving, it's, it's important, you know, might yeah, not always be what I want to do, but it's what it means. It's an extra motivator, right? Because if you're going to live with chronic illness or chronic pain and you've got to move anyway, well, you might as well do it with your dogs and enjoy yourself together. Exactly. So one thing that you really specialize in, which is brings us to our topic of what we're going to discuss today, is multi-dog households, uh, building and maintaining relationships between the dogs. And it's something that as you and I have talked about before, uh, there's not a lot of easily accessed information on this topic out in the dog world. You know, if you Google it, it's like parallel walks, and then that's it. And that might not always be the best thing. And that's definitely not all we need to do. And so, you know, when we're talking about our dog powered sports and our teams that are growing, we need the dogs to be able to get along with one another. Because if we expect them to be you know, seven feet in front of us in harness, connected to each other, working together, you know, they need to be able to work together as a team. And all of that really stems from what kind of relationship they have with each other. So as we're starting to look at potentially bringing a new dog into the home, how do we go beyond just those parallel walks? What are the things that we're starting to look for in the beginning in order to make sure that they do have a good relationship with each other? So from the very beginning, I am having very controlled interactions between dogs. Things are not happening by accident. In order to create an environment where that can happen, we're using a lot of management. So we're using gates, we're using leashes, we're using exercise pens and crates. Because, you know, you want all of these early impressions to be positive. These first impressions are critical and they matter. You know, you don't want your first impression to be, I threw my dogs in a room. And they had a dog fight because now we have a long road back to building something more positive. So in the beginning, it's all about, you know, can you perceive some element of the other dog from another room, like the sound or even trading scented items? And I'm going to pair it with positive things. And then eventually we're going to progress to, you know, can you guys see each other from a distance in the house? And we're going to pair that with positive things and then we're going to take that visual away again. So every time we see the other dog, good things are happening. 
And absolutely, if your dogs are appropriate for a parallel walk, if that is a positive experience for both of them and you have the means to do it, it's it's not bad advice. It's just not enough advice. Yeah. I think that people understand generally the idea of building positive associations. You know, when we think of the relationships that we have with other people, we enjoy spending time with the people that fill us up, that bring us good things, you know, mentally, emotionally. But I think that people will fall behind a little bit in dogs with the prevention component because that management in the house, you know, the very restricted and controlled access to one another, you know, those are the things that are going to prevent the negative associations from being made. And I always like to remind people that all these little positive associations and positive interactions and good things are like putting nickels and dimes in my piggy bank. But if we have a fight, if we have a grumble, if we're staring at each other too long, that's like one to $5 coming out of my piggy bank. You know, those things can be really, really damaging for that relationship. And it can be hard for us to then have to backtrack and kind of catch back up because then we've got, you know, a deficit in that bank account. We're not just starting from scratch to build up to get where we need to be. So that, that management that we have in home is really key. So one of the things that I know is really important, you know, I'm planning on adding a new addition to my home here pretty quick. And I know I'm very excited. And one of the things we've started doing already is introducing the management that is going to be in the home before the puppy comes. Uh, We're starting to refresh the resident dogs on behaviors that I'm going to need need them to know, like quiet crating with lots of distractions, rotations, station training. So how important for all of our listeners is that prep work to think about these things before the puppy even comes home? It's incredibly critical both for your dog, your current dogs, and for you. Because what's going to happen when you bring a new puppy home is we have all these added stressors and changes for everybody, you and your dog. And when we're in that emotional state, we're more vulnerable to having, you know, negative feelings or outbursts or frustrations. You know, none of us are our best selves when the new puppy is coming home. So it is not a great time to also be, you know, shifting schedules, changing routines, you know, suddenly introducing that our adult dog has to be separate from us for half the day. Um, You know, that's, that can be the most difficult thing for some of my clients who realize they need to implement these things after the fact, because it, it's a lot to take on. So as much as you can do, you know, say in those three months leading up to the fact that your your new dog is coming home, is you, you're gonna you're gonna be paid back in spades for taking the steps. I think the other thing to remember too is that you know when we are working on something new. As a human, we need time to adjust to those mechanics as well. So we often think, well, gosh, my dogs might be really adaptable. They'll just be able to go with the flow as all these new changes are happening. But you also have to think about yourself because, again, you mentioned best self, right? Who are we bringing to the table when we're bringing this puppy home? And if I'm not used to waking up early, well, I'm going to have to start getting used to that now. So that when my puppy comes home, I'm prepared for it. And even those little changes can have a big impact on us as we start to look at all these things that are, you know, slowly triggering an increase in our stress, making sure that we as a human 
have what we need to be able to provide for this new puppy, new dog, and manage all these relationships. I think, too, with the, the management piece, I mean, just practicing using your management, practicing, I have to shut this gate and this door, you know, before I move into this space, or, you know, this is the procedure to shift dogs around so that I can go out the back door with X dog, you know, and so practicing those mechanics is really important. Yeah. So one of the other things that we have to do is make sure that we're becoming really proficient at reading dog body language. Uh, There's a lot of little things that you and I might pick up on as trainers that our average dog home might not realize is indicative of stress. A big one that we hear all the time is, oh, I'm so surprised he bit, you know, his tail was wagging. You know, little signals that might be misconstrued or little things where we're not looking at the entire picture of the dog. So we need to start making sure that we're picking up on things that are causing stress in home and that we know how to identify that stress. So if we need to, we can kind of intervene before it becomes a bigger problem. So talk to us a little bit about learning to speak dog and how to read the canine body language. Yeah. So, you know, I have some favorite resources about this topic. Um, I love Chicagoland Veterinary Behaviors resources on, you know, dog body language in general. There are a lot of free courses. There's, you know, really changed doggy language. There's so much stuff out there for you to learn if you access it. But definitely some of the, the small signs where we see stress in dogs as professionals, where people may not pick up on them, are, are very subtle, right? It could be some, a paw lift. The dog is yawning. They're, you know, leaning over to itch when they're not itchy. They're sniffing the ground. They're turning their heads away. You know, they're just very, very small pieces where if you can notice when your dog is doing these things, which are essentially the equivalent of a dog whispering, then we don't get it to the point where the dog is screaming and biting and growling and we have a whole, you know, scenario that we don't want to be in. But we have to know how to read those signals so that we can help our dogs. Because if we don't understand what they're saying to each other, we cannot effectively intervene and help them. And those body language signals are important, even if we just have one dog, but become increasingly more important the more dogs we add to the mix. Um, you know, oftentimes we'll see dogs communicating with each other. And we'll, I know we're going to talk about group play in just a little bit, but you know, we can see some imbalances where maybe one dog is enjoying it, but another one isn't. And that's always our responsibility as the human to be able to identify when those situations arise so that we can step in and peacefully intervene so that, again, we're not creating any problems down the road. So as we're keeping an eye on these communication signals from our dogs, that will help us as humans guide this slow and steady introduction process and start to figure out when it's okay to remove, you know, sheets over the baby gates, when to allow them to see each other, when to allow them to be in the same room, to start group training sessions together. So as you're starting to lessen up on that management, what are some of the things that you are looking for from the dogs? I'm looking for choices that the dogs are making. So Let's say I have a situation where I have the dog separated by a single gate. Let's say that's the level of management I'm at right now. Before I'm even going to consider bringing them into the same space and having them exist separately doing a separate activity, 
I'm going to be looking for, okay, does my, is my dog, are both of my dogs choosing to spend time near this gate? They have the option to not be near each other, but are we choosing to be near each other? You know, are we bringing valued items to the gate? Are we trying to initiate play through the gate? So, you know, I want to look for these positive attempts at interaction. And then also that body language piece of like, am I seeing loose, wiggly bodies? Am I seeing, you know, faces that are just loose and happy, you know, with relaxed eyes? Am I seeing... Um, uh, loose, wiggly tails, yeah. offering play bows, ability to engage and disengage easily. Yeah. You know, we want to avoid seeing the dog that's staring, the dog that's stiff the dog that's licking lips or the dog that's even completely avoiding any kind of interaction. And I think those things can be hard for people to pick up on. And what you said just then was really important, that ability to engage and disengage. I use that all throughout my course in order to kind of assess whether or not we are ready to move forward because, you know, you can't remove layers of management if you cannot disengage your dogs from each other. If, if we're at that level of arousal where we lock eyes and stare and cannot be moved, then it, it's not time to move ahead. Now, those positive interrupters are things that are essential. We need ways to easily be able to get all the dog's attention without yelling, without grabbing collars and jerking them away. Because sometimes when we react with intensity, even if I'm gently grabbing a collar, sometimes that contact can be too much for a dog, it can be triggering for a dog, and it can even create some negative associations for the dogs with each other and with me. So how do how do you kind of build your toolbox of, you know, capturing attention from all the dogs? So the first thing I do is I start using what I call just food-based movement and disengagement strategies, which is just a fancy way of saying, you know, I'm going to use food to move the dogs. So they don't have to have skills yet, um, especially when I'm in homes with puppies. This is just where we start. So we, we can use a food lure. We can, you know, throw a large scatter of treats far away from the barrier. We can do a treat trail that leads them away from the barrier. So I'm starting that basic. Then we're going to move up to a positive interrupter, which is just, hey, if I make this sound, you're going to eat. So, you know, we're we're stopping that moment without stressing out the dogs because we don't want to have those negative associations. Then I'm moving up again. I'm moving to, you know, a hand target. Can you come touch my hand? So in that way, I'm controlling where you're facing. So I can turn your entire head away. Then we graduate to an actual recall. It's a very basic recall, and we train that up, and, you know, that's a great skill to have. I also use treat scatters in the house uh, with dogs that are safe with that activity. You know, if we have a lot of food aggression, it's not necessarily a safe activity. Um, yeah, I... I have used it in some homes with food aggression, but it's like very, it's very specific, right? So don't just go throw mm-hmm. treats down for your dogs. Like if, if you want to do that, you know, talk to a trainer about whether or not it's appropriate. I have a whole procedure for testing whether or not it's safe built into my course. Um, you know, and then I move on to a pattern feeding game. So 
the dogs learn to sit and wait their turns as a food, as a piece of food is delivered to their mouth. And they learn to do that very still, not reaching towards my hand to go get the food to try to steal someone else's turn. So, and while that sounds like a very basic behavior, it's super powerful in your multi-dog households. Because what happens is the dogs anticipate this pattern. And if you play it enough, this pattern can override these moments where they're super excited. So I use it to, you know, have guests enter my house. I use it when I'm transitioning dogs to cross barriers, which you end up doing a lot in your introduction in the later stages, right? Because you're bringing them together, you're supervising them, and then you're separating them. So if we have this pattern feeding game where we can bring them apart and separate them without chaos at things like gates and doorways that can be a source of tension in multi-dog households, we can kind of avoid a problem. And then kind of the last thing that I teach is I actually do, as the last skill, kind of have a positively conditioned a collarbone. But this is like your emergency break, right? We, the reason I teach it last is because I don't want everyone using it the entire time through their whole introduction. I recognize that there may be a time where you need to grab a collar. And if we are going to grab a collar one day, it needs to be something that a dog can expect that has a cue that they have been trained to experience and, you know, have learned to walk nicely with their collar held so that we don't have that moment where we're grabbing a collar when there's tension and then we're causing a dog fight. Right. You know? And I think that the last piece that I really work on in my course with people is just teaching dogs to settle and relax. Yeah. You know, I think that that brings up a really important key, you know, and it reminded me of it too when you're talking about waiting patiently for their cookie. That's something that I do a lot um, in my household with multi, multi dogs and, and then in my introduction as well, because it starts to not only build a positive association, right? It's a group activity we can all do together. That's fun. But it also starts to set that foundation of training in a multi-dog household, which can be really challenging for people. You know, how do I train this one dog if all the other dogs are nearby? And so it starts to kind of plant those seeds for both the human and for the dogs in the house that good things happen for them when good things happen for everybody else that's also in the house. And what I love for people to do is you start training all these skills when the dogs are very much separated, when Mm -hmm. the dogs don't even have visual of each other, right? Because you need to level up your skills to the point where they're going to work in a room where dogs are playing with each other. And, you know, the path from where you start to to that is kind of a long one. So in my course, I kind of interweave all of these skills into these stages of introduction where we're slowly pulling away management so that you're getting practice with skills at every level so you know it's going to work when you finally get them in the same room together. You don't have to, you know, you don't have to question. You don't have to hope. It's, it's going to work. I promise. <laughs> yeah. The other thing I love that you mentioned too, is the idea of learning to relax around each other. Yeah. Oftentimes in multi-dog households, you know, it can be a little chaotic if they get along well, and there's lots of group play happening all the time. But just because the dogs get along together doesn't mean I want them playing all day long, because that can certainly start to create some challenges. 
And so working in those early stages on how to relax, how to focus around each other is really essential in creating that peaceful multi-dog household. Definitely. I think, you know, when I don't have buy-in from a client, so when they come into my course and they're like, oh my gosh, you're asking me to turn my house into Alcatraz. You know, I, I don't want to separate my dogs. This is so inconvenient. And, you know, I go, okay, okay, well, let's do it. Let's do it this way for a little bit and let, let's just see how it goes. And every time there is general chaos because they're playing. They're playing all the time. They're trying to interact all the time. And they're constantly, the owner, having to play doggy bouncer in their own home and nobody's getting a break. And then the barriers go up and then it's magic. But definitely the management is a hugely important piece of being successful. And then you get to create dogs who are used to being separate from each other. You get to create moments of, okay, I have planned this. All of my dogs have had their needs met. They are sort of tired. I am going to put them in the same room space apart and have them working on separate activities, not interacting with one another. Because that's what you want most of the time is dogs who are doing their own thing. You know, they can be with each other without doing things with each other. And so when we do this slow introduction process, we get the chance to build that before we get this entrenched pattern of behavior where it's a free-for-all all the time. Well, I think the other piece to that too, you know, when my dogs are almost 85, 90 pounds ish, you know, and your dogs are big dogs too. And the last thing we want is them thinking it's just a giant free for all all the time in the house because we would have lots of broken pieces of furniture and picture frames, you know, but yeah, yeah, exactly. (laughs) But in addition to that, I think that people don't necessarily realize that play, even if it's good play can eventually lead into not good play. Yeah. So it's that arousal piece, right? So Mm -hmm. dogs shift into the state of high arousal when they're playing often, which is fine, you know, um, but it can tell if we can go into hyper arousal. And when we get to hyper arousal, now we have no brain. Okay. We have, we have all of the emotion, all of the energy and none of the breaks, which is, it's gone. And so that is when I get a lot of dog aggression clients who have dogs who were playing and it was fine for the first few weeks and now every time they play it's a fight yeah you know so um most of the skills that we were talking about earlier really are to get dogs to disengage and kind of lower their arousal before sending them back into activity we have to be really mindful of like what that high arousal looks like in our households so that we can slow it down because that's our best way to really avoid conflict once our dogs are freely out together and we've peeled back that management, you know? So if your dog is, you know, has dilated pupils or is panting a lot when it's not hot or, you know, is trying to hump your other dog, you know, various things like that, we have to look at that and say, oh man, we need to hit the brakes a little bit right now. I think we can also see that problem arise if we have, for example, an older dog in the house and then a young puppy, you know, the puppy might be super enthusiastic, a hundred percent in, and the adult dog is maybe turning their head away, maybe trying to walk away. And we can get that dynamic of the puppy learning how to be a bully where they're 
persistently asking for play, continuously playing. Um, and then, you know, we might have to step in and kind of intervene on behalf of the older dog because we never want to just leave them to their own devices and let them, quote, figure it out because that can result in a lot of damage to that relationship. Right. The ways dogs will figure it out are not ways that we enjoy. So definitely with, you know, what I like to say is that conflicted play is not good play. So if puppies are kind of pestering an older dog into playing and it turns into play, I still really wouldn't consider that good play. It started in a bad place. It's kind of like the, oh, fine. Oh, fine. We will just do it so that this stops. I just want this to stop sort of thing. So, um, you know, when I see a puppy who is continually receiving signals from an adult dog of, I don't like this right now. I don't want to play with you. I, I think it's our responsibility as the person to kind of step in and use some of these trained skills that we should have by the point that these dogs are together and kind of separate them in a positive way and settle the puppy into a new activity. Because at the end of the day, you know, our older dogs are essentially, you know, they just got a new office mate in their cubicle that they didn't pick. Or, you know, they got paired with that roommate at summer camp and it's just not a good match, you know? Like, they didn't give any choices. This just happened to them. Yeah, it's a great analogy. You know, and I think the other thing to think, to kind of keep in mind too, is that as this puppy develops into that adolescent stage and then enters maturity, this relationship is going to be continuously changing. And it's our job to be able to continue to kind of ebb and flow with that management and interactions to make sure that these interactions the dogs are having with each other continue to be positive. I think I've really seen in cases where the puppy was allowed to pester the adult dog, they enter into that adolescence and now they've learned that that is a pattern that works for play, but now they're bigger and it's not, you know, for some people they might view it as cute when the puppy is younger, but it's not cute anymore. And you can see them bring it out with other dogs that they meet out in the world too. It's just very, you know, inappropriate social interaction. Yeah, absolutely. So the other thing we have to think about as we're starting this introduction process, and, and we certainly need to be aware of it more so in some dogs than others, is resources. We have, um, you know, resources as in me, my contact, my interaction with the dog. We've got food resources, um, space resources like crates and beds. And I think that's something that people don't often think about unless there's an issue. <laughs> yeah. So how do you kind of guide clients through the idea of being cautious, but not completely restricting dogs from all the good things of life? Well, the benefit of using management in your introduction process is that your dogs get to have resources in their own spaces. We don't have to live in this scenario where nobody can have anything because we don't know if it's safe. And then, you know, what I want you to do is explore within your management setup what is safe for these dogs. I want you to find out that a resource is a problem before they can actually have a true conflict over it. So, um, you know, with, let's say we have, we want to have Kongs out with the dogs, stuffed Kongs, and the dogs are very excited about them. 
what I'm first going to do is I'm first going to introduce them when I've got two gates in between dogs, the bubble in between, and they're both going to receive their resource, and I'm just going to watch their body language, right? So are we hard staring at each other? Can we just grab our item and walk away and go enjoy it? Or are we super concerned right now? Um, you know, and then if it's safe then, then I'm going to start working on, okay, well, now we're going to have one gate in between and we're going to have people with leashes and we're just going to let them work a little closer together and see how it goes. Like, just, I think the safest assumption in a multi-dog household when you bring in a new dog is that all of the resources are a problem. We're going to assume all of the resources are a problem until we are happily proved wrong. Just because you want to be so protective of those relationships. Like, it is a very hard road back once we have dog fights. So yeah. we, need to, we need to be proactive. And really, that's my uphill battle right now with my business, right? Because I'm taking something where classically we have thrown dogs in a room together. We have just let them work it out. And that's how things have been generally done or described for people. So I want to change it so that we are proactive about everything about this relationship, both the associations that are formed and preventing any possible, you know, fights or conflicts from happening. You know, because if we identify a resource that is a problem early, it's very easy for you to hire a trainer and be like, this is a problem, and we can modify it really quickly, likely, you know, at that stage. But once we get to the point where the dogs are fighting, now it's a longer battle. So, you know, I hate to see people who feel like they're trapped in their own home due to the behavior of their dogs or dogs who are so aggressive that they have to live separately from each other. And I... I guess, like, my goal with my business and my courses and everything is just to keep as many people from experiencing that as possible, you know? Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, it's funny because when we talk about training a behavior, oftentimes trainers will talk about this concept of splitting. Let me take this really big behavior and split it into as many tiny little slivers as possible. So that it's just a little bit different, a little bit harder. And each time the dogs can be successful. And that's what we're just trying to do with our introductions, you know, is to allow all the dogs time to get to know each other, to allow us to get to know the dogs, to slowly figure out what the problem areas are going to be before they become a problem. And by breaking this introduction down and moving nice and slow, we're able to set the environment up so that all the dogs are building positive associations and learning what they are supposed to be doing instead of this giant free-for-all with high arousal where we're creating negative associations and then having to backtrack from it. And I don't think either of us is saying that this never works out for people. Right, right. You get really great dogs and it's fine. But when it doesn't or when, you know, your house is chaos, there are typically some regrets going on. Yeah. So we obviously don't want to leave these relationships up to chance, you know, and like you mentioned, sometimes this does work out for people. Sometimes it's not a big deal, but for us as professionals, we want to make sure that every dog has their best chance to succeed and every human has their best chance, which means that we're taking things nice and slow and peeling back those layers of management and, you know, peeling back those restrictions as the dogs show us they can make good choices. 
So as you are doing this with our dogs, you know, what kinds of things are you looking for where you might say, I need to intervene or I need another layer of management to go back up? Like, what does this undesired look like for you? Yeah. So when you see minor signs of stress accumulating, right? So I'm not saying if your dog shakes off once that, oh my goodness, we need to throw up all of the management again. It's not, it's not like that. It's like, if, if my dogs were spaced apart between two barriers, I have brought them to a single barrier now. And now one of the dogs is suddenly like, shake off, paw lick, uh, you know, panting and tension in their face and actively trying to move away. Well, I, you know, I'm going to take all those little pieces and be like, this is not, this is, they're not ready for this. This dog is not ready for this. It doesn't matter if other dog is ready for it. You know, we have to go at the rate of our slowest dog in these introductions. I love that. That's so important because every dog is going to be different. You know, even if we have, let's say we have two existing dogs in the home and we're bringing a third into the home, then we've got three different relationships that we need to make sure that we're managing individually, one-on-one. And then we've got that group dynamic as well. And so we might find that I'm separating the dogs a little differently and allowing certain introductions to happen between two dogs, but maybe not with the other two. So how do you kind of look at each dog as an individual and then balance that building of the relationships when we've got more than just two? So I think you have to start to identify what your dogs enjoy. And you have to start identifying where the overlaps are between your parents' dogs. So I'll give an example. I brought my newest dog, Fish, into a home with two existing dogs. Both were older than him. I believe they were, oh gosh, I'm not going to, eight and six, I think. So in the beginning, the answer very clearly was for my oldest dog that no activities were enjoyable with Fish. Um, You know, he didn't want to chew side by side. He didn't want to be in the same room anywhere near him. And And that's fine. That was his choice right then, right? But as Fish kind of developed a little more, we were able to identify that they both enjoyed walking. So we started with those walks outside, and we did do a little bit of parallel, and then they came together, and that was their happy activity, right? I have my middle shepherd who can get very highly aroused by puppies inside, and I know that about her, and I can see it in her body language just from, like, having a puppy in my house on the other side of the gate. So for her, it made more sense for all of their interactions to be in the backyard because, you know, she does not appreciate leash tension in relation to a puppy. So, all right, we're not doing leashes. We need to be able to move freely. And that was kind of the choice we made here. So it's a matter of recognizing, you know, what behavior problems your dogs may or may not have and what activities they enjoy and kind of finding that sweet spot where we're not triggering behavior problems and we're also enjoying something safely together. Because it's really important that both parties in the activity are enjoying it. It's not enough for one dog to be enjoying it and the other one to just kind of like hate the experience. Yeah. We want to build both relationships at the same time because also it's, you know, most people are not wanting to make this a full-time job. So 
you have to get the most bang for your buck. So, like, make sure all the dogs are happy with what you're putting time into doing. Yeah. I think the other thing to remember, too, is that when you're bringing this younger dog into the home, this younger dog might have different energy and training requirements than some of the older established dogs. Um, And it doesn't mean the older dogs aren't getting anything, right? But we need to make sure that we're not expecting those older dogs in the house to kind of be the form of entertainment and exercise for the younger dog. And even if we're going out for a group walk because that's what they enjoy together. If I've got a really rambunctious puppy, I might be doing some brain games or some enrichment or something else before that walk to help give that puppy an outlet for that extra energy before we enjoy that time together, if that's what's needed to make it more peaceful for everyone involved. What I try and encourage my clients to do is kind of really think about dog needs and whether or not they have been met before we are entering into an interaction. Because, again, this concept of we want our dogs to be their very best self. So in that scenario, yeah, if you have a rambunctious adolescent, you've got to work their brain before they're together with that senior dog. You know, you've got to make them a little bit more tired so that they're going to be in an energy level that their, you know, new dog sibling can tolerate. Yeah. You know, and I think that kind of brings us to an interesting idea when it comes to our dog powered sports as well, because obviously I'm not taking a young puppy out and running them, but I might hook them up in harness and we might do a little bit of, you know, work with the team on the trails, on soft surfaces, walking, learning directions. But if I've got an adult dog that's really focused on the job, it could be extremely annoying if I've got a puppy that's bouncing up and chewing on ears and grabbing feet, (laughs) you know, and the puppy is still learning but maybe giving that puppy a little outlet beforehand to help reduce that energy before hooking them up or doing some solo time or even pairing them with a different dog that can be a little more tolerant. You know, we've got to make all of these choices for the dogs, both in the home and outside of the home when we're going to to do these activities, if we expect them to be able to work as a team. So Sometimes these introductions don't always go as planned. Sometimes we have some tension between dogs. What are some key things that you look at where you would say, if you're experiencing X, Y, or Z, it's time to bring in a professional to help you with these introductions? Yeah, um, I would say if you have dogs who are regularly growling at each other, um, you know, and not responding to that signal, then, you know, I'm a little worried about where this is going. If we have a tendency to not want to share resources, you could definitely stand to call someone. Um, If you know that you're bringing a new dog into a house where you have a dog-reactive dog or you have an existing dog-aggressive dog, then you could use a professional, you know, to help you through the entire situation. Um, I know you and I have talked about this before. I really want everyone to enlist a professional, you know, when we're when we're bringing a new dog into the home. But definitely any of those kind of signs of aggression, tension, not sharing resources, you know, as soon as you see it, I would I would start to get someone to help you intervene because you don't want to see where it could potentially go. Yeah, and I would 
probably immediately separate until that professional can make an evaluation. Yeah, go back to your original management setup where nobody can touch each other or see each other. Yeah. So for those of our listeners who might be interested in getting a little assistance or guidance with their um, multi-dog home as they're adding a new dog into the team, can you talk to us a little bit about your online course that you have? Yeah, so my online course is called Multi-Dog Households 101, Dog-Dog Introductions and Relationship Building. And it is meant to prepare you from before your new dog comes home so that you set up your home, kind of your routines and schedules and all of these things um, into those early days where how am I going to build these positive associations between dogs? And when am I training these skills for use later? And how am I pulling down management? And, you know, what body language do I need to know in order to understand what my dogs are saying? Um, and kind of working through that entire process until you have a multi-dog household that has reached its safest point. For some people, that's going to be, you know, our dogs are free together in the house. For some people, that's going to be our dogs are only free together when they're supervised. But we take it as far as you can safely go in your household and kind of do that in a way where the people feel get to feel confident in managing their home. Because what I've seen a lot is that people get a second dog or a third dog or a fourth dog and they feel helpless to kind of manage what's going on. So that's my main goal for the course is that you have the confidence to build and maintain the multi-dog household that you want for, for now and in the future. And it's so important, you know, especially when we're talking about our dog powered sports, like these dogs are going to be out in front of you at least, you know, six, seven feet away from you, potentially connected to each other and working side by side. And so these relationships really need to be strong. We need them to be able to, you know, tolerate quite a bit from each other. If they bump into one, one another at high arousal moments, we need them to be okay with that. And it goes down to managing this relationship. And a key piece of that is that introduction. And there are different considerations we need to make depending on how old that dog is that's coming into our home, which is something we didn't talk a ton about. But, you know, as arousal level increases throughout their adolescence, a lot of what we're doing can shift. You know, we again, we might increase that management or decrease that management depending on how they're doing. But I think that if you haven't done those introductions before, it can be intimidating. And you need that guidance to be able to do it safely and to kind of go, okay, my dogs are ready for the next step. And for you to be able to say, yes, they are. Here's what to do next. Yeah, and that overwhelm is kind of what inspired me to make this course. Because, you know, I I was looking for advice for myself, you know, when I added another dog. And um, it wasn't there. So I actually spent about, I want to say, two and a half years really splitting this big concept of introducing dogs into, like, the smallest pieces I could think of. So it's accessible to anyone who's getting another dog, whether they have dog experience, you know, with training or not. I love and, that. I love that. Yeah. So before we head out, are there any last minute tips or words of wisdom that you'd like to share about introducing a new dog and keeping a peaceful household? You know, I was actually more thinking about the teams for dog powered sports. If that's yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So, 
I want you to think about the fact that when you're pairing these dogs together to run races or to just be out in the world with you, that again, as you said before, that we're doing these high arousal activities. And when we're doing these high arousal activities together, I would say even a neutral relationship is not enough mm-hmm. because we, we need a truly good one because if any misstep happens, if you, I don't know, God forbid, crash the bike and they collide into each other, I, I don't want you to have a really bad experience. And I think about it too of, you know, you wouldn't take two kids who are moral enemies and strap them together for a three-legged race and expect that to go well, you know? So right. So let's, let's look at our, our dogs and build these relationships and then slowly work them into working together so that you all can have fun together for many years to come. Yeah, I think that's huge. You know, like you mentioned, these activities are high arousal, they're high excitement. And when that happens, we need them to, to be able to tolerate quite a bit. Uh, we need them to enjoy being around each other because that does happen. Dogs bumping into each other, dogs, you know, and if, arousal level is high, their ability to handle that with a level head can decrease. So those relationships are really, really essential. Um, And your program, Katie, works for if we're bringing in a new puppy and if we're bringing in an older dog. Yeah, it doesn't um, matter the age of the dog that you bring in. Any age, any size. Perfect. Perfect. Well, thank you so much, Katie, for joining me this afternoon. I think this will help a lot of people. And I hope that it plants seeds on kind of retraining ourselves on how to think about dog introductions because that it's a process um, and it doesn't mean that our house is always going to have 10,000 baby gates and X pens in it, but it's essential in that, in that beginning stage to make sure that these things go smoothly and our dogs and us uh, will benefit in the long run by going slow and steady with it. I think the more we can recognize that and kind of change that for people and dogs, a lot of these households are going to be a lot happier. Yep, absolutely. All right. Thanks, Katie. Thank you. So until next time, have fun chasing tails on the trails.